Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Wilder. Now, this is actually part two of our discussion with Jonathan Trexel. If you'll remember from part one, uh, Dr. Trexel is a, he's a retired intelligence officer. He worked in the DOD and STRATCOM for a long time, and now he is on the faculty at Missouri State where he teaches in the graduate program. Uh, that trains uh, our deterrence uh, folks. And it's a widely, Missouri State's program is one of the best in the country, of course. And so one of the things that Jonathan gets to do is to to think about nuclear topics from the intellectual perspective, not just having to implement them now. And on the last episode, we never got around to talking about the NPR and so we said, you know what, let's have another episode and let's talk the nuclear posture review. And so with that, I want to welcome Jonathan back into the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, so we were going to talk about the NPR and we got cut off because we ran out of time. But today we're going to have that discussion. So as you look at the NPR, what were your broader takeaways? Well, I uh, I actually was uh, a bit surprised in a couple of ways. One, I was expecting almost the worst uh, early on, where there had been some promises to uh, reduce the roles and missions of nuclear weapons, and that was ill-defined. What was that going to look like in terms of policy uh, going forward? And then at the other side, um, I was actually surprised because with the mounting threats uh, facing us, both with uh, Russia uh, and what we're seeing with nuclear coercion and with China with a rapid growth of its arsenal and also threats uh, and nuclear coercion that uh, I thought the I really thought the NPR would would be uh, would take a step uh, forward into that emerging environment. And so I was kind of surprised uh, that I didn't see things as bad as it would have been, but I was really surprised given what's been happening uh, just in the last year that the NPR, which which looks out into that future and it, and it provides guidance on on everything from uh, from policy and structure uh, and what we need uh, with nuclear forces out in the future for force adequacy, I thought they really needed to go uh, lean into that because of the emerging threats and the time that it takes to respond to those um, uh, just with capabilities development, et cetera. Uh, I, I just thought it it chose this sort of a middle ground that was safe. It checked some boxes, but it really didn't go where it needed to go. Uh, I'm happy that it, it didn't go sort of backwards. <laughs> yeah. and um, but this was an oppor- a golden opportunity to lean into this uh, f- for our security and for our allies. And I think they missed the mark. Yeah. It's 
for, I, I think it was one of those documents that disappointed everybody because for the, yeah. for the advocates of nuclear disarmament, they didn't get a no first use policy. They didn't get a sole purpose policy. Right. Uh, they're still in a, a, you know, Sentinel got funded, Sentinel B-21 and, and you know, all the sea-based modernizations to Columbia class and the D-5. Right. Uh, so they, they didn't get to, but they canceled Slickum. So that was sort of the bone that was thrown to the, you know, to the disarmament crowd. And then, you know, on, on the side of, for those who advocate for a robust nuclear deterrent, the idea that, you know, I don't know what your thought was, but I'm deeply, I'm less concerned about strategic nuclear exchanges. I'm really concerned about the United States failing to deter Russia or China or potentially North Korea or Iran from using lower yield tactical nuclear weapons. And Slickelman was was our best option. I want a Pershing. I want new Pershings. I want new Glickums. But Slickelman was at least a step in the right direction. Right, and and I share that view. You know, they they retained the low yield Trident, uh, but as you say, they they just pushed back against this idea of the um, <clears throat> of the Slickelman. There was a reason why they wanted both. Uh, the the Trident, the low yield Trident, was sort of that stopgap. Uh, to get you to slick them in. And so it, it wasn't the end to answer uh, that kind of, uh, of regional or theater uh, nuclear problem that you're talking about. Um, it, it was merely a stopgap to get you uh, to slick them in, which was going to take more time. And so it, in some ways, it just doesn't make sense uh, for them to say that the, this low-yield trident satisfies all those deterrent requirements. It just it really does not do that. It, it has a very limited capability. It has uh, some, some disadvantages because it's on a strategic platform uh, when you're thinking about credibly using that. Um, and when it comes to, uh, just as you say, when it comes to this idea of trying to manage escalation from conventional uh, all the way to uh, 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 non-strategic forces and strategic, you know, we, we absolutely essentially have to modernize the strategic forces but we're doing that. But all of the rest of those things are, are needed. If we're going to manage escalation and be able to communicate that we can do that, uh, we have to have the means to do that uh, at different levels of violence, uh, with different capabilities, at different ranges, in different places, uh, and have lots of flexibility um, and different options. Uh, this was uh, sort of the whole idea of, of um, Khan's uh, theory of advantage right? Um, unlike a, a balance of terror, the, the advantage idea was it recognized that there are a lot of uncertainties. And with uncertainties, you have to have a lot of options at your disposal because you don't know what those uns how those uncertainties are going to manifest themselves in the future. So Khan was about a wide variety of capabilities, flexibility, options, but always retaining an advantage. And this is, this is sort of the, the, the biggest area in the NPR where I was disappointed, where we look out at that future with a, a greatly and rapidly expanding Chinese threat, uh, Russian threats uh, with non-strategic forces, as you say. Um, this is where um, this, this idea of sort of a, a smaller number or just relying on your strategic forces is really not appropriate for that kind of threat environment. 
And then we can argue about the, the kinds of things that might be needed. But what was presented in the NPR is not the one. It needs to be more robust in some way uh, to get at that. Uh, again, Khan was, was one who favored advantage because of the uncertainties. Um, I'm sort of in that camp. I would rather have advantage uh, in forces and capability and options and flexibility. Um, and with all those things, then we can deter across the board and hopefully you don't get to any of those things. But, but as you had mentioned uh, before, you know, weakness um, uh, is something that, that breeds um, the, the kind of ill behavior that we're trying to deter. And uh, without those kinds of capabilities, to me, we're, we're sort of in that weakness camp. And that's a, that's a place we don't want to be. We're incurring unnecessary risk. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that for those who wanted to see no first use and sole purpose and want to, you know, eliminate legs of the triad, I, I think it's, I would have to say that they fundamentally misunderstand human nature. And they also fundamentally seem to misunderstand history, like the the INF and how Reagan was able to ultimately negotiate INF was was he did the exact opposite of what, you know, advocates of disarmament want. He he ultimately built a capability that put Moscow and St. Petersburg under threat. And then by virtue of them feeling the pressure and the threat from Glickham and Pershing, they therefore gave up more. Because if you look at their capabilities that they gave up, they were a much greater uh, diversity and numerical uh, advantage for the Russians than, than for what we ultimately built to then negotiate away. And so I wonder... Is as we think about Russia and China now, and they they have these, you know, short, medium, intermediate range ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, all these other things that they're building that are below the strategic, and we have nothing by which to hold them at risk in that area. Are we not just encouraging them to move into the to the area where we've built a vacuum? Well, I, I agree with that. And that's that's where, you know, we do have some limited capability with the with the low yield trident with some DCA in Europe. But the slickum was essentially the minimum that we needed to to walk into that uh into that area. And we're already seeing um both Russia and China be very provocative, very assertive. Um not just in in conventional or cyber or space. But with nuclear coercion, and there's a reason that they feel comfortable doing that. And we should feel um, a great sense, you know, you, you talked about human nature, but, um, you know, this, this idea that um, uh, if, if we want to pursue arms control or if we want to have some kind of restraint in nuclear forces, that has to be based on some measure of trust or at the very least uh, a strong regime of verification. And we really don't have... Um, uh, today, the environment to do that, and it really, we really don't see that on the horizon. Um, and, and and this comes back to ideas of con, where you have those kinds of uncertainties, those kinds of uh, those ideas of mistrust. In that kind of an environment, we we really don't have a choice but to prepare to defend ourselves against those kinds of distrustful adversaries. Um, they're not simply a competitor. They're not just simply. Uh, 
states who uh, are interested in in uh, growing uh, their reputation. These are states who actually want to conquer and take territory. These are states that are threatening our allies. These are states with with uh, producing capabilities and greater capabilities to threaten the U.S. homeland, U.S. forces abroad. Um, so we, uh, to me, we have to take that very seriously on face value for what we're seeing. And um, it now we find ourselves in this position where we are responding, we're reacting, and we're behind the power curve uh, when it comes to having those kinds of capabilities to respond across the board. That takes a long time to do. An NPR is, is a chief policy instrument to help put us on that footing for the future. And that, that's why the NPR was so important with that kind of threat that's coming, that's there and, and coming, but it missed that mark. Um, and I think that was a, a, um, a, a dangerous uh, policy document to put forward, not just for us, uh, because we, you know, as we said, we, we're going to modernize our strategic forces, but what else are we doing? And it doesn't fall into any of those categories of what else to do. And our allies and our adversaries are looking at that. And I think it's a very strong message to our allies as well, that the U.S. did not go where they were expecting it to go, where it really needed to go. And I'm not sure how our allies are going to react to that. Well, the you know, one of the other questions, you know, that the NPR talks about is that they want to get back on a, you know, back into the business of arms control. And I guess one of the questions I have is, you know, we had the Biden administration extended new start for an additional five years. Have we engaged in a single verification act in the, since that, since new start was extended, have we verified? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I don't think that we've had anything meaningful when it comes to arms control or verification, um, I think there have been some communications on uh, uh, test launches, that sort of thing. Uh, that's kind of standard fare. Um, <clears throat> but if you look back in time, um, as we developed a relationship with the USSR, some of that uh, you could look at. And we learned in this relationship one with another, you cited the the INF. And because of those kinds of things that we learned over decades, um, both sides felt, and the U.S. as well, felt uh, more willing to go down the role, uh, the road of arms control. There was some measure of a relationship there um, where we thought we could reduce risks, we could reduce threats. It reduced our own forces as well. But, but in doing so, we thought we were providing for greater security, and it was, but it was based on a lot of years of, of uh, relationship and learning. Um, when this administration put forward the new start, this was before the Russians invaded uh, Ukraine. Um, and uh, I perhaps they're dealing with a bit of regret from that, um, where that, that kind of thing could have been um, uh, used uh, as leverage uh, with, with what the Russians were doing in Ukraine. Um, I'm not sure. But again, those kinds of things from the past were based on relationships and behavior. And now we're seeing we don't have any sort of an arms control relationship with, uh, with China. And the relationship with, uh, with Russia is eroding and has eroded. And this idea of mistrust is very, very strong. It's palpable. Um, so I, I, don't see any, I don't see arms control 
uh, coming to the fore anytime in the near future. And that should uh, connect with this idea of what that future threat environment is looking like and why the NPR and future NPRs need to lean into that threat environment. There won't be an opportunity for meaningful arms control for a variety of reasons. And the threat is, is coming at us uh, in so many ways. And we have a lot of responsibilities for the U.S. and for our allies uh, in multiple regions. And for that reason, we, we have to be much more assertive with what we're trying to do with our nuclear force. Now, the Nuclear Posture Review offered up this new concept, integrated deterrence. Now, I've written in, in real clear defense about what I would call, you know, in a, the, sort of this false sense of integrated deterrence as a deterrent strategy, when in reality, integrated deterrence is actually the administration's grand strategy. If you look at what integrated deterrence is, it meets the definition of a grand strategy. And that grand strategy relies on and growingly relies on non-military means to advance national security interests and seeks to expand whole of government, economic, which I'm okay with using those things. If you look at Chinese strategy and uh, Rob Spaulding, retired General Rob Spaulding, has a new book out that looks at the Chinese, the came out in 1999, Unrestricted Warfare, that sort of laid out a Chinese strategy. And that strategy is largely reliant on misinformation, economic warfare, cyber warfare, all of these sort of non-traditional military means. So I like using those things because the Chinese are using them. But, but my concern is, is that this perception that we can deter by becoming less reliant on nuclear weapons. And I, I'm not sure that I've seen any indication that that's possible or that any of our adversaries are buying it. Do you have a take on integrated deterrence? Uh, what, what was your thoughts as you looked in, looked at it? Well, in terms of a grand strategy, <clears throat> if if there was a lot of thought, serious thought in into that in terms of a decades-long strategy, um, then it's very problematic. Uh, for example, as you mentioned with um, economic warfare, those sorts of things, well, part of what we're learning from uh, the experience with Ukraine is that it has a lot of limits and there are ways uh, and workarounds for that. I think China is uh, well ahead of that and learning from that. And they're already uh, looking at different ways to to alter that future environment in their favor. Should those kinds of uh, uh, that kind of wide scale sanctioning be placed upon them? Um, so it has very limited capability. So do conventional forces. World War One and World War Two taught us that about the limits of conventional forces to deter. Um, to your broader point of the kinds of forces that we need to deter, it will come back to this idea that they have to be across the board. Uh, we need the, all of those things. My biggest concern when it comes to integrated deterrence is how our allies interpret that. Um, and when we continue to say uh, we want to reduce the roles and missions and the salience of nuclear weapons, and we have this... Um, this ill-defined concept of uh, of integrated deterrence, where there is no uh, there is no integrator, there, there's no one assigned to do this. 
There's no dedicated funding to do this. So, so if it's a if it's a grand strategy, to me, it misses some of those just real basic ideas to it uh, for for infrastructure. If you're going to do that, uh, to me, it seems a little bit more uh, conceptual. But our allies, when when they hear that, uh, what I think they're hearing is uh, the U.S. is not going to rely as much on nuclear forces to deter adversaries' attack on an ally. That. I think is something that erodes allied assurance. It erodes the whole concept of extended deterrence because our adversaries are looking at, well, we could we could attack uh, U.S. allies, and the kinds of threats that would be coming at me are. Uh, it's less about nuclear threats. It's less about even missile defenses, but it, it could be things like economic or conventional. Those are things that I think our our adversaries are already taking into account. In, in sort of their, their calculus of costs um, and fears of punishment. Uh, nuclear forces are the things that will really get at uh, putting fear into an adversary's calculus. And when those are being diminished in an environment where our adversaries are putting increased salience on nuclear forces, that should be alarming to us. And I, would be, I believe that it's very alarming to our allies uh, and and that's something that is uh, so this whole integrated deterrence concept to me, our allies are hearing less uh, less role of nuclear forces to deter, and they feel uh, more more threatening and more risk because of that. So I think that's a mistake. Well, it's time to take a quick break on Nuclecast. We're talking to Jonathan Trexel, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join NucleCast at the summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeter.org slash NucleCast. We're back here on Nuclecast talking to Jonathan Trexel. We've been talking about the nuclear posture review and you've been talking about this lessening of reliance on, on nuclear weapons. And I wonder, do you think that the recent change in defense policy by the Japanese is, is any reflection on their perception? Is it purely uh, a concern about the Chinese, or do you think it could also be a reflection that they're concerned that the United States might not have the same military capabilities, nuclear, potentially conventional as well, to defend them? Because they're they're pl- they're spending more, they're they're really growing their defense capabilities and posture. So, how do you see that? Is there any relationship between the NPR? In, in this outcome? Well, I, yeah, I think it's both. I, I think from, from Japan, um, 
over the last uh, couple of decades, they have been growing a very capable uh, uh, layered uh, missile defense system, uh, one of the best in the world. Um, a, a large measure of the threat coming to them is from ballistic missiles. But if you look at their annual reports, uh, their security uh, reports that they put out, uh, their white papers, they, the uh, narrative has increasingly changed from a threat from North Korea to a threat from China. And I think the, this, this growing and emerging threat from China, and again, China has been very vocal with coercion against Japan, but Japan has a deep stake in um, the, the defense of Taiwan. It has a deep stake in this region. So when it sees the threats uh, on the one hand, and it sees uh, there's no slicker men, there's no DCA, uh, we have very limited capabilities. We have the problem, the, uh, the tyranny of time and distance to get forces into theater uh, with a uh, with a, a large uh, potential Chinese uh, uh, aggression in in the region. Uh, all of those things combined, um, I think, send alarm bells uh, to to uh, people in in Japan. And they're uh, they're leaning into this. Uh, it's now going beyond discussions of sim- of simply defensive capabilities uh, into the ability to uh, to use their own ballistic missiles uh, for attack purposes to deter. Um, look, they've been in space. Uh, they know about uh, uh, ballistic missile technology. They're very good with that. Um, so uh, they're they're expanding their capabilities in space for intelligence, for early warning, all of these things uh, should be uh, signals to us that uh, they think they need to do more on their end uh, to to have the deterrent effects that they're after or to defend themselves. Their Navy is growing, all of these things. Uh, so uh, I think it's a combination of, of Japan looking at the threat and uh, and what that environment looks like and what the response of the United States has been or more rightly uh, has not been. Yeah, it's an interesting one because it's I just finished a book that I would recommend to anybody. And I think that if I remember the title correctly, it's the end of the world is just the beginning. Uh, I can't remember the author's name, but it it was sort of a broad look at trends. And one of the trends dealt with, you know, the East Asia trends. And this was, it was sort of positive in the sense that if you look at many of the trends for, you know, everything from growing your own food to energy resources to, you know, pop to demographics. China in the decades ahead is not going to be in a good position. They don't have their own energy. They can't grow their own food. And their population is because of the one child policy. They're going to have this cliff that they fall off of. Whereas the United States is potentially in the best position. We have our own energy. We can grow our own food. We have a stable population. And so therefore we're in a pretty good position. And Japan, one of the points that they made was for conflict uh, that the author made was that Japan has, you know, probably the second best blue water Navy in the world. And so if, if the United States and Japan team up, this is quite significant for the Chinese because the Chinese can't effectively project power. They can defend their territorial seas with the, you know, their coast guard and their maritime fleets, but they can't project water, you know, sea power across the Pacific. And so I wonder if we can, if, you know, it comes to a shooting match, if we can defeat the Chinese absent the use of nuclear weapons, absent, you know, direct, attack on 
the Chinese homeland, but through a sort of a strangulation where the United States becomes the boa constrictor to, you know, to mainland China. And do we have the nuclear weapons that it would take to maintain that deterrence as we try to essentially choke China out and eliminate the Chinese Communist Party? Because that's really what we're after. We we have no beef with the Chinese people, but it's the question is the Chinese Communist Party. And because we're at the end of the show, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, those are uh, uh, big and grand <laughs> ideas. I, I, I haven't read the book. Um, when it comes to Japan and certainly our other allies in the Pacific, um, I, I think they do take a very strategic view. And that's the view that the United States needs to take uh, when it comes to dedicating a certain percentage of our GDP for defense. That needs to, be, uh, that needs to rise to a certain level. But if, if we are acknowledging this, this large, this global uh, threat for the next period of time, some measure of decades uh, from China, we have to step into that and, and address that in a very serious way, but in a strategic way. Strategic forces, nuclear forces, good combat conventional forces have to be part of that equation. Uh, and and a, good, a good stable deterrence uh, policy uh, needs to be a, a fundamental part of that. And I just think we're we're still missing that. We're f- still falling short of that. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Jonathan Trexel. Thanks for coming on to the show again. We're glad we got to Pleasure. Thank you. glad we got to talk NPR and I want to thank the listeners. Uh, and we'll see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington. And this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.